Tales Season 4, Episode 9. Excelsior, mid-1988 to December 31, 1989. Episode 9, Things Coming Together. The first annual Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts, January 25 through 28, 1990, would become a dream realized. The Association to Preserve the Eatonville Community, Inc., PEC, would be able to present every program piece we had dreamed of. In this episode, dear listener, I want to tell you some of the backstories of just how this all came to pass. Let's begin with that exhibition idea. Remember the one we wanted to develop? The idea we pitched to the Florida Folklore Society when Shirley Cannon, a member of the society, and I drove to Gainesville to attend one of the society's meetings? And when, during that meeting, Ormond Loomis, then one of the managers of the Florida Folklife Program, had told us we should expect it to take two to three years to produce such an exhibit? Well, shortly after that meeting, Shirley Cannon got very busy. She reached out to another woman named Deborah Guglielmo, a museum exhibit designer based in Tampa, and arranged for the three of us to visit Lake County to look at a project Guglielmo had completed so I could eyeball what was possible. On a sunny afternoon, a very pregnant Deborah Guglielmo, Shirley Cannon, and I drove about an hour to Lake County destination. What I saw there was very much in keeping with what we had envisioned for our festival audience, a display introducing a community and the people involved. The question facing us was, how could we achieve this? The answer, we had to have content on both Zora Neale Hurston and on Eatonville. For Zora Neale Hurston, Stetson Kennedy, a legendary figure in Florida folk life, served as the lead. During the Franklin Delano Roosevelt New Deal era, Stetson Kennedy had served as a junior interviewer and as an acting supervisor for the Federal Writers Project, and he had been Zora Neale Hurston's supervisor. Yes, he had anecdotes to share about Zora Neale Hurston, but for this project he was most useful for the research he was conducting at the Schomburg Collection. Today it is known as the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture, a research division of the New York Public Library. Now let me tell you quickly about the Schomburg Collection. It is one of the world's most important repositories of African and African American history. And in 1926, the Carnegie Corporation, a philanthropic fund established in 1911 by the steel magnate Andrew Carnegie, that corporation purchased the collection and donated it to the New York Public Library. So the Zora Neale Hurston content was well in hand. What we needed now was the Eatonville content, and that is when Ms. Hortense Jones, a member of the Eatonville Citizen Subcommittee and one of the community historians, swung into action. She organized a gathering session, a several hours long event, where Eatonville citizens were encouraged to bring items for review and possible inclusion in the exhibit. And the wonderful thing about the process was the owner would not have to give up the item. Guglielmo could make a special archival copy of it and return the item to its owner. Most importantly, Guglielmo would have the exhibit ready for the opening program Thursday evening, January 25. 
Spring of 1988 proved to be a very busy time for us as planners. We were doing a considerable amount of travel, considering we had no budget. Our next day trip was to White Springs, Florida, where the Florida Folklife Festival held during the Memorial Day weekend in May. We went on Friday so we could see the festival's education program. Impressive it was indeed. Hundreds of yellow school buses with thousands of children engaged in a variety of activities. Visiting this event helped us as planners to understand much better what we could do to ensure a quality education experience for our K-12 audience. I should also talk with you a bit about the process we were using to execute our plan. The technology was the telephone and the fax. Telephone to secure contact information so we could follow up with a fax to allow for written formal communication, quickly followed up again by a telephone call. And now, this brings me to how it was that I first spoke with Miss Ruby D. Let me repeat this, dear listener. I spoke directly with Miss Ruby D. Her office called one day while I was at my day job at the University of Central Florida, McKnight Center for Excellence. I was in the front uh, talking with the receptionist when she said, NY, you have a call. I went to my office and the voice on the other end said, please hold. Very shortly thereafter, a rather deep-throated voice came on the line. Trying to be as calm as possible, I asked, to whom am I speaking, please? And the voice came back saying, this is Ruby. I'm having chills right now, dear listener. I had never spoken to a celebrity before, and I was 40 years old. It was quite a conversation, quick, really not that long, maybe five minutes. I told her what we were trying to do and what we would like of her. She said yes, and that the office would manage the details. We had Miss Ruby D confirmed. We also used 20th century technology to secure and confirm Dr. Robert Hemingway, Zora Neale Hurston's literary biographer, then chancellor at the University of Kentucky, Dr. Ruth T. Sheffy, founder of the Zora Neale Hurston Society, the first of its kind on an American college or university campus, and Miss Augusta Baker, Librarian Emerita, New York Public Library, where she had served as branch children's librarian from 1939 to 1953, and then as central office assistant coordinator of children's services from 1953 to 1961. In developing our festival program, we used no agents, no commercial representatives, no handlers, a direct connect to our celebrity invitees, which brings me to my concluding backstory. You may recall from season one my recounting of the financial support Alice Walker had given our organization as we prepared to celebrate our one-year anniversary. Well, I had sent her a copy of the program booklet along with the thank you note. Later, I had contacted her assistant, Joan Muir, to issue our invitation to her to be the banquet speaker on Saturday, January 27. Yes, she said, she would accept the invitation. And then this is what she told me. First, 
our organization should try to secure $10,000 for her speaking fee. Second, if we were not successful in securing the $10,000 speaking fee, she would come anyway. And third, but if we were successful in securing the $10,000 speaking fee, she would donate it back to the organization. Dear listener, I must admit to you that I am tearing up just a bit. Think about it. And I am saying this with a smile. Think about us, who we were, implementing our plans. We were dreamers, experienced in our individual professions, yes, but in the high ether of culture and celebrity, we were essentially Don Quixote, as it were. So to have a Pulitzer Prize-winning author pledge her $10,000 speaking fee to us was breathtaking. Without a doubt, as we headed into the summer and fall of 1989, things were certainly coming together. End of episode nine. You've been listening to An Eatonville Saga. Executive producer, The Association to Preserve the Eatonville Community, Inc. Podcast concept, and storyteller, Enwind Theory, Eatonville native and executive director of the Association to Preserve the Eatonville Community, Inc., P.E.C. Produced and directed by Ken Moore. 2020 copyright by the Association to Preserve the Eatonville Community, Inc. All rights reserved. Thanks for listening. If you would like to support our podcast by giving, you can give to P.E.C at www.give2pec.org. That's www.give2pec.org.